0: Last week's episode of chapter three and four kind of wrapped up the paranormal experiences of my parents' house. Now, there's still some more paranormal experiences as we go on with the book, but now we're going to get into the next three chapters, five, six, and seven, that are going to start talking more about my personal life and the bad choices I made that will eventually lead to divorce and depression. So give this one a listen and uh, hope you guys enjoy. Remember, if you like what you're hearing, you can pick up the book either on our website, where you can have it personalized, or you can get it at Amazon.com. And please, if you've already gotten the book, if you could leave a review on Amazon, that helps tremendously. Part 2. Self-Destruction, Depression, and Marriage Chapter 5. I Am My Own Worst Enemy Roughly a year ago, I decided to write a book. The idea of sharing my paranormal experiences was exciting, as was the prospect of recounting how the Hillbilly Horror Stories podcast has actually become a powerful support system for listeners. Excitement soon turned to anxiety when I realized that in writing about those two topics, I would inevitably have to share my past. Now that past, or the person that I used to be, is not something that I'm proud of. That person seemingly ruined nearly everything that I held sacred in my life. Thus, it took nearly that entire year to convince myself to actually put the pen to paper. When it comes to the paranormal, nothing scares me. But the thought of people reading an unfavorable version of the Jerry that they've come to know from the podcast, that was terrifying. I hated the person that I had once been, even though at the time I was not cognizant of that. Today, I'm proud of the person that I've become. But there are many regrets. Regrets that I live with every single day. But those same regrets help keep me on the right path. As much as I would love to erase all those memories and live without the anguish, I know that without those horrible experiences to be able to reflect back on, I would regress back to being that person. This is not to say that I'm a perfect person now, far from it. The old me does occasionally rear its ugly head. Sharing these stories may be the most vulnerable thing that I've ever done in my entire life. My biggest hope is that in sharing these experiences that rather than people judge me, they will find hope and transformation. Over the past 20 years, I have pursued steps to help me become a better human in general, but more specifically, a better husband, dad, son, brother, and a friend. This transformation is possible for anybody if they're just willing to put in the work. That change can come as soon as today if you really want it. Nothing happens overnight, but with patience, it will happen. And when I realized that, everything else fell into place. This is going to be a long, bumpy ride So buckle up. Reviewing my life, compared to most children, I was well-behaved. I steered clear of the wrong crowd, never drank, tried a drug, or stole anything. Overall, I did well in school, with the exception of getting in trouble a few times for being the class clown. I was never expelled or in trouble for fighting. I never skipped a class. And most of my teachers actually loved me. And then, I was out of high school and my moral compass drifted. At 17 years old, my aunt Darlene helped me get my first real job. This would be working the front gate at the Louisville Zoo. This was such a great experience that 35 years later, I consider this my favorite job that I ever worked. My main responsibility when I started was collecting tickets from visitors as they entered the zoo. Now, eventually, I became one of the front gate personnel and could now drive the train that went completely around the zoo. This was not a full-size train, but it was not a kiddie ride either. Most of the year there was a cashier in the booth that sold tickets for the train. The passengers would then walk down a ramp and board the train. After everyone was seated, the driver would then tear each rider's ticket, give them half, and then throw the other half away. There was no cash register set up in the booth at the time. There was just a simple pull-out cash drawer. The tickets were just a round roll of tickets, typical of ones used for drawings. When the cashier started the day, they would record the starting number of the tickets on a sheet of paper. Then at the end of the day, the cashier would write the ending numbers down. Tickets at the time were $1 each. So if at the end of the day, the last ticket number was 65 there should be $65 to remit. I was only 17 and by no means a criminal mastermind but I saw a clear opportunity here. In the fall, there were less demand for train rides. Therefore, the zoo employed only one person to sell tickets for 15 minutes, and then that same person would lock up the booth and drive the train for that trip. Then the employee would return to the booth and repeat the process over again. Now, the majority of my co-workers were college students and seasonal employees, but I was a full-time employee, so I was trained to be a cashier when the weather turned colder. This paved the way for a very tempting opportunity for me. After a week of running the cashier booth and then driving the train several times a day, I realized that there were no cameras and no supervisors checking up on me. This was the opportunity I had been looking for and I was going to test the waters. On the first ride of the day, I sold seven tickets. When I went down to the train to collect the tickets, I did not tear them. I kept the entire ticket. None of the customers asked for their half, and why would they? These tickets were not good souvenirs because they didn't even have the zoo's name printed on them. When the ride was over, I returned to the booth with seven completely intact tickets in my pocket. The next ride had 11 riders. The first seven tickets I sold were those rollover tickets from the first train ride. Since we were using manual recording of the starting and ending numbers from the rule of tickets, there was no proof of actual tickets sold. I was able to put $7 in my pocket, and no one was the wiser. My technique got more refined, and I was able to pocket more money without anyone noticing the loss. Some weeks I made over $200. I was only making $3.50 an hour back then, so my paychecks were less than $100 a week after taxes. That fact and knowing that this was a city job and the money was going straight to the city and not out of an owner's pocket allowed me to convince myself that this was not immoral. When springtime rolled around again, the jobs of driver and cashier were shared, so selling and driving were not done by the same person. That should have put an end to my embezzlement. Embezzlement, that's exactly what this was. But at the time I did not see it that way because, like I said, the zoo was owned by the city. I was not stealing from an independent company. Deep down I knew better, but that is how my teenage mind reasoned out what I was doing. So I continued my crime and doubled down. During the spring and the summer, the train could sell upwards of 1,500 tickets a day, and I knew that fact. On big holidays like Memorial Day and Father's Day, The train would sell between 2,500 and 3,000 tickets that day. Those kinds of numbers meant that I could bring on a little crew of people that I trusted. I knew many employees were strapped for cash, and soon there were three of us working as a team. Whenever two of the three of us were in the train cashier booth and driving the train, it was showtime. The team member who was the driver would collect all the tickets from the passenger, run them up to the cashier booth, and then go back and drive the train. Those tickets would then be resold for the next trip, and the driver and a cashier would split the money. We could only sell 70 tickets per trip, so we needed to do this for three or four trips each day to make any real money. Then we would run things as normal for the other trips to ensure no one would figure out what we were doing. This went on all summer. There were weeks when I made $500 or more. Greed, though, is a horrible vice, and it clouds your judgment. The summer came to an end and I got careless when I was back working by myself. On this day, I'd collected about 20 tickets from an earlier ride. The next ride, I sold fewer tickets, therefore I had most of those tickets left over. Instead of putting them in my pocket, I placed them in the cash drawer to use when I got back from the next trip. I figured that would be safe because the drawer was locked and I was scheduled for another four hours at the train station. What I had not planned on was my boss sending someone in to relieve me Because the zoo admissions cashier had to leave for an emergency and I was the only one on site that could cover that position. The young lady who relieved me went into the booth and started to count the cash drawer and found the tickets. She was confused and called my supervisor to ask what to do with these extra tickets. Apparently, my brilliant idea of making money via embezzlement with a train ride was not unique to me. The supervisor knew why those extra tickets were in the drawer because he had experienced this several times in the many years that he had worked at the zoo. When I arrived back to the train station, I saw my supervisor waiting for me. Supervisor was one of the greatest men that I had ever met. I had no idea what was about to happen. As I approached, my supervisor held out his hand and I saw the tickets. He asked if I wanted to explain. I attempted to play dumb. But I was in way over my head and this was someone that I really respected. He told me to go finish the day in the admissions cashier booth. I felt horrible the rest of the day, but was more upset about disappointing my supervisor than I was about my actions. The next morning I arrived at work and was promptly fired. That was the only job that I've ever been fired from in my life. That was a city job, a job with great benefits that would have led to better jobs and retirement after 30 years. I pissed that away because of poor choices and greed. What I did not think of this whole time that I was embezzling was that this was a real crime, one of which that I could have served jail time. When I was told I was fired, I immediately began to worry that the zoo would be calling the police. What was I going to tell my parents? Luckily, they never called the police and they never pursued any charges, and for that, I will be forever grateful. This was my only brush with any type of criminal activity. Unfortunately, it would not be my only time sabotaging something in my life that could have been great. Chapter 6. Life Lessons Within a month of being terminated from the zoo, I had landed on my feet at Enroll Shirt Company in Louisville, Kentucky. My narrative about the job interview would be that I went in and blew them away with my charm and charisma, but the reality was that my dad's cousin was dating the cutting room manager and she got me the job. I did not have to endure an interview and I felt blessed. My gratitude fueled my drive to not screw up with this new opportunity. My main responsibility was to spread out fabric from which many shirts would be cut. The labor was much more physical than my job at the zoo. But I had now not only bounced back from being fired from my first job, but I would learn some valuable life lessons at Enroll Shirt Company that would carry with me for the rest of my life. Most of the positions at Enro were piece rate jobs. Most people today are not familiar with the term piece rate. In a nutshell, that means that an employee has a minimum hourly pay. In my case, it was six forty-five per hour. But they can make more based on their production. For my position, we got paid for every ply of fabric that were laid down on the job, as well as how many rolls of fabric that we had to handle. That meant I had the opportunity to make upwards of $10 an hour which gave me an incentive to work harder. This was a real opportunity for me, but at 18 years old, I was living at home and making a minimum of twice what minimum wage was at the time with just my base pay. So basically, I did not have much motivation to bust my ass. This led me to learning my most important work lesson in life, a lesson that would change my attitude towards work for the rest of my life. The plant manager would be my teacher. My lack of motivation inspired me to call in sick to work very often. My shift started at 3.30 p.m., and by late afternoon, my drive was completely gone. I had a new girlfriend by this time, and there were times where I was reluctant to tear myself away from whatever I was doing to go to work. After calling in to work for the third or fourth time in a month, I was told to report to the office of Mr. King, the plant manager. I've always thought it was ironic that the man who ran the company had the last name of King. When I entered his office, I found not only Mr. King waiting for me, but also my department manager and my union steward. I had flashbacks to some of the same thoughts that I had when I lost my job at the zoo. What was I going to tell my parents? Was I getting ready to get fired from yet another job due to my actions? Fortunately, my anxiety about being fired would not be realized. Instead, I was offered wisdom handed to me on a silver platter. Mr. King leveled his eyes and very directly informed me that I should be ashamed of myself. Then he proceeded to tell me why. My position offered me the opportunity to make as much money as I wanted, and there were many people who would do anything to have that job. People who had families to feed that were stuck making less than I was with no ability to make any more than their hourly rate of pay. His final statement to me was that if I was not going to appreciate the opportunity that I had been given, that I should just leave so that someone who would appreciate the job could be hired. The words of Mr. King resonated with me. He was right. This was a perspective that I had never considered, and I realized that I had wasted three months that I had worked for this company and taken an opportunity away from someone who needed the job more than me. In that moment, I felt very selfish. And I busted my ass every single day after that, and I became the top producer in the company within a month. I was promoted to a cutting position after 10 months. Most people had to wait years to get promoted to cutter. This was the highest paid position in the entire plant. I took full advantage of this opportunity, and I earned the trust of my co-workers, who then voted me in as their union steward. Three years later, I was called into Mr. King's office once again. This time, I was offered a supervisor's position. The company had bought a tie factory from South Carolina and was moving it in to be part of our plant. They wanted me to be the cutting room supervisor. At that time, I was 21 years old and proudly accepted, making me the youngest supervisor in the company's 90-year history. I held that position for the next two years and was highly successful. Then, the rumor started out that the company was going to be moved overseas. I was worried because I was recently married and we had a child. So I decided to take a position with another company. At the time, I had no idea that this would be a huge mistake. This new job would not be successful and this would lead to other career choices that were unstable and would cause me a great deal of stress. Their stress would lead to anger. All of this would eventually take me down the path of divorce years later. But before I talk about the marriage and subsequent divorce... I want to reflect on my relationships. Chapter 7 Relations and Infidelity My girlfriend when I first started working at Enroll Shirt Company was named Joyce. This was my second girlfriend and I was her first boyfriend. We met at the end of the summer as she was getting ready to enter her junior year of high school. I had already graduated from high school so the fact that we ended up dating was purely by chance. My friend and I were at the mall and we saw these two pretty girls, a blonde and a redhead. We approached the ladies and made small talk and I got the redhead's phone number. I called and asked if she and her blonde friend would like to hang out with us. She said yes and she offered for us to all hang out at her house. To be honest, I was interested in the blonde girl. But apparently so was my friend because when I called my buddy and told him about the plan and then told him I was interested in the blonde, he decided not to come. I decided to go anyway and was disappointed when the blonde didn't show up. It was just me and Joyce, the redhead. We actually hit it off and we dated for the next three years. And then I faced my next moral dilemma. For the first two years that we dated, I was head over heels for Joyce. That changed when she openly admitted that she had cheated on me. The other guy was one of her older sister's friends. He had recently started hanging around and it was obvious that he was making advances towards her. At least to me it was obvious. Joyce was a little naive at the time. I told her that I thought the guy was interested in her, but she disagreed. One night, Joyce and her sister and a few others were hanging out. One thing led to another. This left me devastated. I broke up with Joyce. She had wanted to stay together and work it out, but I had my pride. And when I looked at her... All I could see was this guy and her together. After a few days of showing up at my house, crying and begging, I decided to reconcile. This was more of a sympathy for her than anything else. Even though she had broken my heart, I could not stand to see her upset. She had just lost her father that previous year. I helped her through that loss. I was the one she counted on when times were rough. In my mind... I was the reason that she was hurting, and she needed me. So I swallowed my pride, and I agreed to give it another shot. Shortly after we got back together, I started hanging out with a friend from high school named Dean. We had shared a class together my senior year and enjoyed each other's company. I had not seen him since graduation, but ran into him again when he was visiting my neighbor. We started hanging out on a regular basis, and this led to me spending less time with Joyce. Dean and I enjoyed watching sports and comedy specials on TV and realized that I really missed my social life prior to dating Joyce. When Joyce and I started dating, we spent every moment outside the time that I worked and played sports together. The fact that our relationship had been damaged by her infidelity did not help and it fed into this desire to actually spend less time with her. The appropriate way to handle this situation would have been to break up with her, but that's not exactly what happened. For most, this is not a big moral dilemma, but it is reflective of the fact that I have a big heart and that sometimes leads me to make poor decisions. I honestly felt that I had good intentions. At least sometimes I had good intentions. But I have plenty of poor choices to share that were all based on selfishness or stupidity. Dean had a younger sister named Cheryl, who was 18 years old, brunette and incredibly attractive. She was not around Dean's house much between her job at McDonald's and attending school. One evening, Dean and I were hanging out upstairs in the living room, which was unusual because we preferred to be down in the basement in the family room. This gave me the first opportunity to interact with Cheryl, and it would not be the last. I offered to give her a ride to work and pick her up later. Soon, this became a regular thing. Joyce and I were still a couple, How should I have handled this situation? Not the way that I did. I told Cheryl that I already had a girlfriend and if she wanted to hang out that was fine but she would be number two in line behind Joyce. Now writing this makes me cringe. Just writing this makes me cringe. How in the hell did I ever think that this was acceptable or fair to Cheryl or Joyce? Somehow I reconciled my position. Cheryl had just gotten out of a long-term relationship, and she had made it clear that she was not looking for anything serious, so she agreed to this arrangement, at least for a little while. Cheryl and I had only been hanging out for a brief time when Dean informed me that it was possible that Cheryl was pregnant. This information caught me off guard. I was not even 20 years old, and children were not my thing, so I was not sure how I felt about this information. This was very early in our relationship, so putting an end to what we were doing would have been easier. I gave this some serious thought, and I decided that I really liked her, and I was fine with it if she was pregnant. But this was not solely my choice, and she still had not told me that she was actually pregnant. I hoped that she was not pregnant, because it definitely complicated things. I wondered if the father was the guy that she had recently broken up with, and if they might actually be getting back together. There were so many questions to be answered. Cheryl did come to me a few days later and informed me that she was almost positive that she was pregnant. We discussed the situation. She explained that she had no desire to get back with her ex-boyfriend if she indeed was pregnant. The next step was to take a trip to the doctor to confirm the pregnancy. I joined her for that visit. We found out that she was, in fact, pregnant. She told the ex-boyfriend that she was pregnant, and he denied being the father and informed her that he wanted nothing to do with the baby that she was carrying. This was not the response that she was expecting, and she was visibly hurt. I told her that she and her baby did not need a guy like that in their lives, and that I would be there for them. This was big talk for someone with a girlfriend. Now, even though Cheryl might not be interested in that, I meant every word, and this was despite us not really knowing each other very well. Within a few months, Joyce started college and we started to see even less of each other. I was working second shift and she was adjusting to her new schedule. We would squeeze out some time between her classes and before I went to work. The relationship still had not recovered from the betrayal of trust and my newfound interest in Cheryl had more to do with the lack of time spent with Joyce than our actual schedule. Joyce knew that she did not have my full attention. At the same time, Cheryl started making statements that indicated that she was unhappy with being number two in my life. She started crying when I would leave and asking why it could not just be us. In a classic dick move, I would remind her that she knew the situation when we started, and she had agreed with the situation. I walked into her room one night to say goodbye after watching a game with her brother Dean. She was asleep and had apparently fallen asleep while writing a letter to her friend Tina. I glanced over the words and saw that she had told Tina that she was in love with me and it killed her that I had a girlfriend. I knew then what I needed to do. The next day, I broke it off with Joyce. Remember, though, that I had a big heart or perhaps it was that I had no balls and that actually was probably more accurate. Just like the breakup we had before, she cried and begged me not to break up with her so I relented. The problem was that I had already told Cheryl that I had broken up with Joyce, and now I needed to go back to Cheryl and tell her that I had taken Joyce back. I honestly am so ashamed of the things that I did early on in our relationship. By the time I completely broke it off with Joyce, I had dated Joyce and Cheryl simultaneously for a full year. Neither of these women deserved the treatment that they got from me. I eventually apologized to Cheryl for my actions. But I want to publicly apologize to Cheryl for two specific incidents during this time. These are two of the lowest points in my life. If I could go back in time and change five things from my past, these would be two of them. The first moment I would like to take back occurred on the night that I was taking Joyce to her senior prom. I thought I looked sharp in my tuxedo, so I stopped by Cheryl's house to model for her. I was oblivious to how inconsiderate this was to Cheryl's feelings. Dean had another buddy over named Wayne, and he knew what a jerk move this had been, and he displayed this by leaving his car parked directly behind mine in the driveway as he left with Dean in Dean's car. It took me 15 minutes of maneuvering to move my car enough that I could pull out through the yard. I was really angry at him at the time, but looking back on this, I applaud him. The second incident that I would want to change was the most regrettable moment of my entire life. I've cried about this more times in the past 30 years than I can count, and as recently as two weeks ago. Remember that I had told Cheryl that I would be there for her and her baby. On March 4th, 1989, Cheryl called me to inform me that she was on her way to the hospital. This was the moment. I informed Cheryl that I was with Joyce and I could not come. Let that sink in. Cheryl was on her way to the hospital With more than likely a thousand emotions and thoughts going through her brain, and the one person that had promised to be there for her just blew her off. What a piece of shit I was at that time. How was I any different than the biological father? And even worse, at that time, this did not even bother me. Joyce and I were doing nothing important, but I could not be inconvenienced. A few hours later, a beautiful, healthy baby boy by the name of Austin James Quiggins was born without me there even without me being there for that moment that boy was going to change my entire life